Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for your feedback that you've been loving our Coach's Corner guests lately. We've had some incredible people, and today, Dr. Lisa Moscone is no exception. We're going to be talking about the XX brain, which means the female brain, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about her in a moment. And if you happen to have a male brain, I still highly suggest you listen to the show to understand the difference between our brains a little better and to also empower you to take better care of your own brain and the brains of the women that you love. Before we dive in, a lot of you have already registered for our Healing Your Inner Child virtual retreat, which is June 5th through 7th. There's still time to register. And if you can't join us live, you can absolutely get access to the recording. Go to christinehasler.com slash inner child to join us. It's going to be absolutely epic. The people that are signing up are just amazing. And I know that this inner child work is what so many of us need to be doing right now. So much of the fear and the violence and the division that we're facing globally and especially here in America comes from unresolved wounding. It does. It comes from unresolved trauma from our childhood, belief systems that were imposed on us that aren't from the frequency of love. And it's up to us to repair in ourselves. Otherwise, we just end up repeating the same patterns or limiting ourselves and not stepping into our full potential because we're believing a lot of the mistruths that we either were told or took on as a child. So again, that's christinehasler.com slash inner child. So let me tell you about our guest today. Dr. Lisa Moscone is the director of the Women's Brain Initiative and associate director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Wheel Cornell Medical College, where she serves as an associate professor of neuroscience and neurology and radiology. In addition, she's the adjunct faculty member at the NYU Department of Psychiatry and the author of Brain Food and the XX Brain the latter of which we'll be talking about on the show. I loved this conversation with Dr. Lisa. There's so much incredible information, and I think it's imperative that all of us understand how to take our health and our well-being into our own hands. We can't live in constant fear of our bodies. And I love doctors like this who are doing the research to really teach us how we can avoid illness, how we can really empower our body. Our bodies are meant to thrive. They are meant to be healthy, but we live in a world where we're not educated on how to do that. So take some notes, take all this in and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Lisa. Lisa, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk about a lot of things, specifically our memory and how to keep our brains really healthy, and even more specifically about how women can do that. And we'll talk about your new book, which I'll bring up in a moment. But I'd love to just backtrack a little bit. You you have a lot of credentials. You have a PhD yeah. in neuroscience and nuclear medicine. Right. Um, you're an integrative nutritionist. You're a holistic health practitioner. So I'd love to just hear a little bit about your story. And please, as you're telling your story, tell us what having a PhD in neuroscience and nuclear medicine actually means. <laughs> sure. <laughs> So my story begins in Florence, in Italy, where I grew up, and I, um, I'm an only child, and my parents are both nuclear physicists. So that makes for an interesting childhood, um, to the point that when I was maybe six, I told my parents that I was going to be a psychiatrist, and everybody just panicked. Because, you know, if you're a nuclear physicist, psychiatrist, kind of, not even second class, but more like really not something you want in the family for some reason. And so my parents worked very hard to discourage that in some way. It's very, very gently. My parents are adorable and they're absolutely wonderful. But then around the time that I had to decide what to do in college. So in Italy, when you go to university, you sign up for five years of very specialized training in one topic. There's no major and minors. It's like if you study law, you're doing that for five years. Mm. Study business is five years of business. And so when it was my turn to decide, I was like, okay, I'm going to do neuroscience then. 
And so I embarked in this five years journey that I loved. I loved every minute of it. And it's really neuroscience. It's really everything about the brain. There's very little psychiatry, but it's affiliated with medicine. So that was very interesting to me. And around that time, my grandmother, who lived basically in the same building as us, started showing signs of cognitive decline in a very clear way. She's, she was an incredibly intelligent, very sharp, very attentive woman. And immediately we noticed that she was just acting weirdly. Her behavior changed quite suddenly. And that was really the onset of a 10 years affair with Alzheimer's disease. Mm. And even more scary perhaps for us as a family, a few years later, her two younger sisters also started showing signs of very strong cognitive decline, whereas their brother did not. So basically, there were four siblings, three sisters and one brother. All three sisters developed Alzheimer's disease and died of it, whereas Mm. the brother did not, even though they all lived to the same age, pretty much. And so that was my experience as soon as I was in college. I was like, whoa, this is really something I want to look into. And as soon as I graduated from university, um, I decided to do more of the same thing. And so I went to nuclear medicine um, because I knew a bunch of people there who actually many of them babysat me when I was little, some of the professors. And so I asked, you know, can I train with you? And they said, absolutely. And then I got into a PhD program in neuroscience and nuclear medicine, which is, for me, is wonderful. So nuclear medicine is a branch of radiology where we look at the human body and the brain using techniques like the big words, but like positron emission tomography is what I do, or PET, which is, Mm. I'm sure you've seen some of those images of the brain where some parts are blue, some parts are red. You know, you can see the activity of the brain, right? So that is really nuclear medicine is, is what we're doing. So you're not just looking at the anatomy or a structure of the brain or any other organ, you're actually looking at live biochemistry. Is really the way your brain functions any given moment. And you can also see a number of diseases, in, but you can also understand health better. Mm. So it's really these aspects that were very fascinating to me. And that was the beginning of my, my career. So I moved to New York. I went to NYU. I did my PhD there. I finished my PhD there working on Alzheimer's disease and the early detection of Alzheimer's disease. And then... I became a professor and then where you was a prof- an assistant professor of psychiatry and then I moved to Wild Cornell where I work now. I am now an associate professor of neuroscience, mm. neurology and radiology wow. <laughs> to add to the credentials. <laughs> but most importantly to me is that I, I was able to launch the Women's Brain Initiative mm. Wild Cornell a few years ago, which is really an entire research program dedicated to women's brains, Mm. which is very new. It's a one of a kind. And we work together with the first and only at this point Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic in the United States, which I'm associate director of. So we really have this incredible program that is really dedicated to the early detection of Alzheimer's disease, early as in 30 years prior, 40 years prior. 30 or 40 years yeah, prior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We work with people who are in their 20s and 30s and 40s, any age, any age, but we started 21, really. So it's really great that we have this opportunity. And I personally specialize in women's brains. Wow. Okay. Oh my gosh. So, so many questions. <laughs> I just want to have you over for dinner and talk about all of this. <laughs> Yeah, please. We're here in the barn and all, all I'm eating is salad and bread. <laughs> Can't find any food. Oh, goodness. I know, I know. Someday soon we'll all be able to connect again in person Hopefully. and we'll appreciate it even more. Um, right. So yes. let's let's back up a little bit. Tell us what exactly Alzheimer's is because I think most people know it's memory loss, but tell us right. what happens actually in the brain. Yes. And I also, I think it's important to clarify the difference between Alzheimer's disease and dementia. I find that Mm. people use these words interchangeably and there's some confusion as what is what, right? So just to put it out there, dementia is an umbrella term 
that includes a number of diseases like Alzheimer's disease. Okay. Alzheimer's disease is one form of dementia. It's the most common form of dementia, accounting for over 70% of all patients with dementia. But there are other forms as well, which is important to know because each form is a little bit different. So there's Alzheimer's disease, there's frontotemporal dementia, there's Lewy body dementia, there's Parkinson's disease with dementia, there's vascular dementia, there's mixed dementia, there's PICS disease. There oh are many different, I know, and we study all of them, obviously, but I specialize in Alzheimer's disease. And so far, Alzheimer's disease is the only form of dementia that we know might be preventable for many cases. So that that's good. That's good. Yes. Like is, it, <laughs> is it the is it the um, the worst form in terms of complete memory loss, or other forms of dementia can they be even worse in terms of memory loss? You know, they have very specific symptoms. I think Alzheimer's disease is the only form of dementia with severe memory loss. So that would be the worst. Mm. disease for your memory. Okay. Like Parkinson's disease affects your movement. Yeah. Right? You can't really walk or it's hard to coordinate your limbs in a way. Lewy body dementia is really defined by hallucinations, which is horrible. Mm. Uh, frontotemporal dementia is more aphasia. It's like a language. Mm. You have a hard time with words, like understanding language, producing language, um, also memory, but it's not as clear-cut as in Alzheimer's disease. Like Alzheimer's disease is really, by definition, is that form of dementia. So it's an age-related neurodegenerative condition. This is the official explanation mm-hmm. or description. Uh, so it's a disease that attacks the brain that leads to severe memory loss, but also deficits in attention and language. I would argue that memory loss is the, it's like perhaps the the signature of Alzheimer's disease, like when people can't remember information. Mm. Um, there's more to Alzheimer's than just memory loss. And there are, of course, many different forms of memory loss. Mm. But I think it's um, it's an underlying feature for most patients that there is this, this problem memorizing information and retaining information. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting. I've I seen that. I saw that for the first time in my grandmother and her sister, one of her sisters, that long-term memory is spared for a long time, whereas short-term memory is immediately affected. And the difference is like, if I tell you something in the morning, you won't forget, you, you'll, you will not remember that by lunchtime. Mm-hmm. And that was in my grandmother that, you know, she just would not remember my name almost, mm-hmm. but she could remember very clearly this incredible Greek poem that she had learned when she was in high school, like by heart, word by word in Greek, ancient mm-hmm. Greek. She could totally remember that, but she could just not remember what she had for breakfast. Oh, well, why couldn't she remember your, your name? If Wouldn't that be tied to her long-term memory? Yes. In fact, I, I tried to correct myself, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that was after. That was after breakfast. That, uh, major breakfast. Yes, yeah. memories come, come after. But there is, a, there is a hard... A lot of patients have a hard time coming up with names. It's something that it's, it's quite um, immediate for, for reasons that transcend, actually. Memory is more of a conducive issue. Gotcha. The communication between different brain parts is not happening as well as mm. as other parts. So so with with dementia or Alzheimer's, whichever you want to answer, what's actually happening in the brain? Is it degenerating? Are synapses not firing? Like what yes, if you could describe both. to us visually what's happening, what's right, happening? Right. So in Alzheimer's disease, the, the general belief is that there are lesions that are happening inside the brain. And these are two major forms. One is called amyloid plaques or Alzheimer's plaques. And they're the most well-studied and um, perhaps better recognized. I think everybody knows that there are Alzheimer's plaques. Um, But then there's another form of pathology. There's another problem that is called, this this is a long word, it's called neurofibrillary tangles. And so the difference between the two is that amyloid plaques or Alzheimer's plaques are these little balls of um, radical forming peptides (laughs) that are created between neurons. They basically, they're something that gets stuck in between neurons and impair the communication 
between different brain cells, whereas the tangles form inside the brain cells. So our, our brain cells are basically under attack from the outside and from the inside. Mm. And then they start dying. So there's a lot of neuronal loss or it's called apoptosis that we measure using brain scans and we refer to as atrophy. But the, I think they call, the popular word is brain shrinkage. Mm. So you have yep. these plaques that block your neurons from talking to each other. You have the tangles that damage the neurons from inside. And then you have loss of brain cells and therefore shrinkage, brain shrinkage over time. Gotcha. Okay. And that makes it basically hard to remember because your brain is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your brain is shrinking, but very specifically, the memory centers of the brain are under attack very mm-hmm. early on. And these are called the medial temporal lobes. And the key structure is the hippocampus. If anybody knows about that, it's basically is referred to as the long-term center, uh, the long-term memory center of the brain, but is also really involved in a number of other functions like sense of direction. A lot of patients tend to get lost even in familiar places. Mm-hmm. It, it's really important for anything that requires learning information. I think that's the problem. So the hippocampus is really about learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so let's talk about how this happens and ways that we can prevent it. And I want to circle back to the fact that you have really studied female brains because in all the research I've done, because I listen to a lot of, I geek out on podcasts on, <laughs> on, on health and well-being and vitality. Uh-huh. Um, that's my favorite kind of podcast to listen to. And one thing that I've heard repeatedly is that most medical research is done on men. And also right. not a lot of medical research is done on women in their childbearing years. So we don't like so much of the research in terms of what we should do and statistics is based on men. So is that, I, I know that obviously your personal story about your family was probably one of the reasons that you wanted to study women, but was the other reason the fact that there just wasn't enough evidence or research out there? Yes, in part. So um, <laughs> it's interesting. I hope you heard that from me on some podcast because this is really I did what it. I, Oh, that's interesting. So um, yeah, so in my new book, The XX Brain, I really talk about this in detail because one of the problems I had um, pretty much ever since I started working in this field is that I would get so much pushback whenever I asked questions about Alzheimer's disease and women. Because I was like, okay, so is it just my family? You know, is it, is it that Alzheimer's disease only hits the women in my family or is it part of a larger picture of, of a bigger story. And then I looked into that and for a long time, we just didn't know. No, I started young, but I've been doing this for 20 years almost. And back then, nobody really cared. Like everybody thought of Alzheimer's disease as the, either the product of bad genes in your DNA or aging or a combination of the two. And so when I would ask, well, does it matter if you're a woman or a man, do women get Alzheimer's more? People would say to me, well, you know, women live longer than men and Alzheimer's disease is a disease of old age. So of course, more women than men get Alzheimer's. Mm. And for a little while, I was like, well, you know, that kind of makes sense, right? But then as being a scientist, I started questioning these assumptions. And the first assumption was that, well, do women live that much longer than men? And the answer is no. Right. So mm-hmm. in the United States, women tend to outlive men by four and a half years, not 20. But also it took a really long time to clarify how Alzheimer's disease is actually not a disease of old age, but rather it starts with negative changes in the brain years, if not decades prior to clinical symptoms. Wow. It really shifts the timeline to midlife. And so my question changed and I asked, well, and those, that's a lot of my research. We really showed how Alzheimer's starts in midlife and not in old age. So then for me, the next step was to say, okay, so if Alzheimer's disease starts in midlife, then what happens to women and not to men in midlife that could potentially explain how ah, women... Starting to see the connection here. Right. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a story. It's a story. <laughs> because something I should have mentioned before 
mm-hmm. is that almost two thirds of all Alzheimer's patients are women. So now that people have wow. started looking into that and now that we have the data and the statistics, it turns out it's not just my family. So all over the United States, but also globally, almost two thirds of all Alzheimer's patients are women, even accounting for the fact that women tend to live a little bit longer than men, which really means that for every men suffering from Alzheimer's, there are two women. And so at that point, nobody could discount my (laughs) concerns anymore, right? And they started getting fundings to look into that. And another big issue that I had, like you mentioned, is that I realized how the research was so gender biased. A lot of what we know in medicine in general, not just in neurology, but also in medicine, is really based on studies in men, which is a concept that in my book I refer to as bikini medicine, (laughs) right? So bikini medicine is like saying that women and men are essentially the same person with different reproductive organs, Mm. which is a an enormous bias that we always had in medicine where the assumption was that you know, men and women have the same heart, right? It looks the same, so it must also function the same way. And so for a number of reasons, um, women at some point in the 1960s were actually completely excluded from research. And we have decades of medical research that was done pretty much entirely in men, and not even just men, also male animals, because menstrual cycles make, you know, like female mice or female animals more difficult to study, which is true. And so just based on this bikini medicine assumption that the differences don't matter unless you're testing fertility and reproduction, all the studies were done in men and male animals. So we really have an enormous gender gap in research that's Other fields have done a better job at overcoming, like cardiology. Finally, people openly acknowledge that men and women do not experience heart disease the same way. We have totally different symptoms. Like even a heart attack, which is perhaps the best recognized issue with chest pain and pain shooting down the left arm, that's really a male symptom. Women do not experience those symptoms, so much so that doctors do not realize that women are having a heart attack. And we are seven times more likely than men to be discharged, uh, to be sent home from the ER while having a heart attack. Wow. Because yeah. the symptoms look different and they're basically The symptoms are of- different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, but the research was done in men. Mm. And so, and the same happens with the brain. There's so much that we just don't know about women's brains because so much of the research was done in men. And actually, even even worse, when people started to look at differences between men and women in terms of brain health and brain aging and brain diseases, since Darwin, pretty much, (laughs) the underlying assumption was that women's brains were inferior to men's brains. And so all the research at the time was really aimed at um, finding proof that that was indeed the case. So the working hypothesis with that was that our brains were inferior to women's brains. And then scientists were trying to find reasons to confirm that our brains were indeed not as good as men's. <laughs> I know. I say, like, oh my God, why, 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 number one, right? Wow. And so wow. There, was a lot of, there was a lot of work that they really needed to be done. Yes. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for doing <laughs> this you. work. And so what in your research did you start to notice about, um, I'm guessing that this has something to do with menopause and how our hormones change in midlife, right. that that's, that somehow affects our brain. Yes. Yes. So when we changed our, when I changed the question to what happens to women in midlife, that doesn't happen to men and that could potentially trigger Alzheimer's disease in women or explain the higher risk what could that be? And it took a little while, honestly, but the answer was menopause. And the reason it took a little while was, again, that we have a bias in medicine where brain people are not looking at ovaries or hormones and OBGYNs are really not equipped or trained to talk about brains. So we have this disconnection, this disconnect where it took a little while and I think we really did an enormous amount of work to 
to change things where we're now really appreciating how our brains are in constant interaction with the reproductive system mm. and how these interactions are so specifically important for brain aging in women, not so much in men, but really the connection between the brain and the ovaries is crucial for brain aging in women. And so menopause really plays a key role in brain aging as well for women, obviously. How so? How does it affect the brain? Oh, in so many ways. So I think it's really important to, in order to answer your question, I think it's really important to clarify what hormones are and are not, right? Yes. So we think about sex hormones, as the word implies, as something related in sexual activity, fertility, and lack of fertility. But these sex hormones, estrogen for women, testosterone for men. Are you still there? Yes. Yeah, can you hear me? Oh, yeah. So it just went wonky for a second. So I heard okay. you. I heard you define sex hormones, but then I lost you after that. Okay. So we think of sex hormones as something involved with sexual activity, fertility, and lack of fertility. But in reality, these sex hormones, like estrogens for women and testosterone for men, were actually mislabeled. So they were identified when people were looking at reproduction, but it took until 1992 for scientists to realize that these very hormones, the same hormones that we refer to as sex hormones, are not just involved in sex. They're actually really involved in brain health. Mm. So they were totally mislabeled and it took a little while to change things and really appreciate that these hormones are so incredibly important for brain energy. So estrogens in women, androgens in in, in men, they really uh, push your brain cells to burn sugar to make energy. So they really give energy to your brain. They're also really important for the immune system in the brain. So they really keep your neurons um, healthy and resilient. And they're also important for plasticity and growth. Mm. And so what happens though is that Um, these hormones have different lifespans depending on whether you're a man or a woman. So for men, testosterone doesn't really run out until late in life when men are in their 70s and 80s, which is on average, right? Which is a very slow and fairly symptom-free process as compared to women. Because for women, we lose our estrogens in in a serious way already in midlife with menopause. And so what happens when you lose these energizing hormones, like your estrogens, your progesterone, uh, what happens is that your brain cells, your neurons actually slow down and start aging faster. Mm. And some studies, including my own work, have shown that this um, slowdown in metabolic activity can even trigger the formation of Alzheimer's plaques in women already in midlife. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it's wow. not great news, <laughs> but there, we can then talk about things too. <laughs> yes, I know. Oh, being a woman. And the thing is, I just think that the female body has been so misunderstood. And it's not like yeah. we got the short end of the stick in terms of our right. hormones, because it's always like, oh, female hormones. It's just, we don't really know how to use them and how to actually um, understand our hormones because we've been living in a male paradigm for so long. Right. So- yeah, let's let's talk about what we what we can do. Right. So there are many things that women can do today to really protect their hormones and support their hormones and their hormones' effects on the brain. Mm-hmm. And some things that we can do include for some women taking medications like hormone replacement therapy could be a good asset for some women, but not all women. Um, however, all women can definitely can definitely uh, look at their lifestyle and medical history and the environment and make choices that are really positive and have a strong impact on their hormones and their brains as well. Okay. What are some of those lifestyle choices we can make? Okay. So since everybody's in a lockdown right now, I think uh, three of the most important ones are diet, exercise, and stress reduction. Mm -hmm. Which one do you want to start with? Um, Let's start with diet. 
Okay. So diet, I find to be an incredible tool because everybody eats at least two or three times a day, sometimes more than that. So we have three chances every day to make a positive impact on the health of our brains, right? Mm. Because we know from a number of studies, and I actually even wrote a book about this that is called Brain Food, and it came out two years ago. We really know um, that the food we eat uh, really has an impact on the health of the brain. So if you eat healthy foods that provide the nutrients that your brain needs, your brain will perform so much better for you. But if you eat a number of foods that are bad news for your brain, that you really negatively impact um, your likelihood of aging gracefully mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. And there's Actually, like a bad diet has been really linked to every chronic condition on the planet from depression and anxiety to cancer all the way to dementia. Yeah. So I think a healthy diet is really important. And for women, because I know we don't have a lot of time, so I'll just give you like three tips that I find to be really important for women is to really focus on um, antioxidants. And I'll tell you which ones and um, omega-3 fatty acids and phytoestrogens. Mm. So antioxidants are uh, nutrients that really reduce oxidative stress. And oxidative stress is the code term for free radical production in the brain. So this is something that makes your brain cells age faster. It's the same principle by which we get lines and wrinkles you know the same thing can happen inside our brains and it's really impossible it's really important to um, obtain this antioxidant nutrients from the diet especially research shows that for women vitamin c and vitamin e are really really important and you can get those from um berries at a great source of vitamin c and everybody's so you know, everybody eats blueberries. Everybody knows that blueberries are good for you. But blackberries are actually much more potent than blueberries in terms of their antioxidant capacity. Mm. So it's not the season yet, but I think in a couple of months, it would be good for everybody to try some blackberries here and there. Excuse what about me. frozen? Because I heard that a lot of times frozen berries are frozen at their height, at their yeah. peak. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yes, absolutely. If you don't have access to fresh fruit, I, I have a ton of frozen food, uh, frozen fruit in the freezer and we have blackberries, blueberries. Yeah, my daughter is four and a half, so we can't run out of strawberries or <laughs> I'll get fired. <laughs> um, other really good ones are goji berries. Mm. Right, they're dry, so you can buy them on Amazon or in the health food store if we're ever allowed to go outside. Um, lemons, oranges, grapefruits. Mm. Mm. Yes, most fruits are really good sources of vitamin C. Uh, apples are good as well. And then for vitamin E, I strongly recommend extra virgin olive oil as yep. the condiment of choice. Almonds are really good for you if you like hazelnuts. I love hazelnuts. They're my favorite. So mm. eat a ton of those. Um, some seeds are also really good sources of vitamin E. Uh, so polyunsaturated fatty acids would be my number two crucial nutrient for women, especially the omega-3 fatty acids that we find in smash fish, S-M-A-S-H, which is um, salmon, anchovies, mackerel, Sardines, herring, smash. Salmon, anchovies, mackerel, sardines, herring. Herring, yes, okay. smash. Okay. So it's easy to remember. It's really fatty, fatty fish. Mm -hmm. And so smash fish really contains uh, omega-3 fatty acids, especially a form called DHA, which is the main brain fat that is really important to... Uh, obtained from the diet, especially for women, it's been showing that uh, diets that are that contain enough of these omega-3 fatty acids, especially DHA, are associated with a 25% lower risk of depression, mm -hmm. of menstrual pain and infertility, as well as a much lower uh, rate of heart disease in women, and also a reduced risk of dementia by over 70%. Wow. 
Yeah. So it's really important. And if you don't eat fish, if you don't like fish, which is a lot of people, then there are some uh, plant-based foods that can, you know, Mm -hmm. can really replace the fish if you like. But uh, like most nuts and seeds contain some omega-3 fatty acids. And yes, um, I, I, I have an acquired taste for sardines now because mm. I also know they're good um, in terms of calcium and all kinds of other things for my bones. So right. I, I just put them in a salad with some olive oil and salt and perfect and cucumber. And <laughs> yes, <laughs> and try delicious. to not notice the sardines. Yes. Well, you have no chance, you know, with, with your husband who's like Italian and Greek. Yeah. There's yeah. no way to avoid sardines. I'm sure yes. you guys or have olive oil. Yeah. Or olive oil. Yeah. <laughs> Little octopus here and there, yes. right? Awesome. Well, I wanted to ask you too about eating because there's so much research out there on intermittent fasting and how amazing it is. But again, Mm -hmm. when I dig into the studies, it's men and mice and male mice. And so I'm curious if you feel intermittent fasting. So for people that don't know what that is, that's having a smaller eating window. So let's say you only eat from noon to 8 p.m. And then from 8 p.m. to noon, you don't consume any calories, including cream in your coffee, like nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just wondering if any of your research has shown that intermittent fasting is actually beneficial for the brain, or maybe it's something we should start doing when we start going into menopause and maybe not do in our reproductive years. I'm just curious if you've done done any research on that at all or looked into it. Not personally, no. This is not something we looked into. However, I would say that it makes a lot of sense to me to refrain from eating overnight. Yes. Like, you know, these time windows are completely arbitrary. Like you mentioned, 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. The one I'm familiar with is when you stop eating at 6 p.m. and don't eat anything until 8 or 9 a.m. the following morning, which is what we recommend to our patients because that works, in my opinion, that works well with your circadian rhythm, right? Which is, okay, 6 p.m. is when we wind down. Yes. And then technically there's no reason to eat while you're sleeping. Yes. You should be sleeping or at least, you know, resting. And that gets you through breakfast, pretty much. Yeah. So, you know, from where I'm from, <laughs> intermittent fast, fasting is literally called having a good night's sleep. Mm. Like you're not supposed to eat after dinner. And that's, yeah. that's the end of it. And then if you can stretch it out to like 12 hours without eating, some people do 14 hours without eating, but that's very personal. Yeah. I, I think for some people it might work, for others it may not. Yeah. And also one thing I noticed with some of our patients, they're like, oh yes, I'm doing intermittent fasting. They're like, oh, fantastic. What do you eat the rest of the day? Exactly. Right. Exactly. And then it's like 3,000 calories worth of keto diets with right. like, me, like, yeah, with their fat bomb brown eggs and <laughs> yeah. like, and you're like, what? How is that reasonable? How does that make sense to you? Right? Oh, so we'll so, stick to our berries and our our smash uh, fishes. Um, I would say, especially now that this these times are very stressful, I think just paying attention to what we eat and really trying to think of food as function. Mm-hmm. Right, you want to eat foods that really help you, and right now we want to make sure that our immune systems are really as strong as they can possibly be. And so we know that antioxidants really strengthen the immune system as well. There are a n- number of foods that are rich in antioxidants that also double down as anti-inflammatory mm-hmm. and antiviral or anti-fungi. Right, so this is the time to really use those foods regardless of whatever diet you're you're on or what kind of you know, whatever trend you're, you're following, there's a reason to eat onions. There's a reason to eat garlic. There's a reason yeah. to eat fruit. There's a reason to eat veggies. So I think it's really about the function of the food and yep. kind yeah. of effect. You have. basically just listed my whole diet. It's there you go. <laughs> garlic and onion and vegetables at night. Ginger. A smoothie and yeah, right. ginger in my smoothie, ginger. lots of berries. Exactly. So my, my only vice is my one piece of unsweetened dark chocolate a day. Oh my goodness. We, we eat the same exact thing. I just, we were so excited that we found, um, do you like the lily? Dark chocolate? I love lilies. lilies yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, I was yeah. so excited that my husband found it at the store the other day and he, he got two bars. and was like, yes! <laughs> a little also because we're here in the barn right now, we're in the middle of nowhere, we're staying with friends, but I don't have my things. Like I, I couldn't bring my Vitamix because it's yeah. heavy and so I haven't been able to 
make a proper smoothie and I, I was just so miserable. <laughs> then I got another one. I got another blender. I was like, I must have it. I love it. I love it. Um, well, anything else on diet or should we move on to lifestyle? No, let's move on. Yeah, I oh, no, actually, actually, I do want to mention phytoestrogens. Yes. Oh, yes. Like, is that like broccoli sprouts and things like that? Broccoli sprouts, I perhaps. Okay. So there are some foods that contain estrogens mm-hmm. in the form of phytoestrogens, of estrogens from plants. They really act like mild estrogens in our bodies. And the foods that are the best sources of phytoestrogens are actually, well, the number one is soy. But I wouldn't necessarily go there unless you know that you're not um, allergic to soy, that you're not intolerant. But other foods that are good sources of phytoestrogens um, that have been associated, for example, with a lower risk of half flashes in women and nice sweats are sesame seeds. Mm-hmm. Flax seeds, which I'm sure you put in your smoothies. There you go. Chickpeas, dried apricots, uh, all sorts of legumes like beans, all sorts of beans and lentils, but also some whole grains, really good sources of phytoestrogens, especially those that still contain the endosperm, like the wheat germ is a really good one, or rice, barley. And a number of fruits, especially berries, like we're talking about before, but also cantaloupe, mango, the sweet tropical ones. And dark chocolate is a good source of phytoestrogen. Yes. 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 (laughs) I was also really like, yeah, (laughs) good news from my research. (laughs) Chocolate is good for you. And I imagine things to avoid, sugars, dairies, high saturated fats, those types of things. You know, dairies actually is not something to avoid as far mm-hmm. as women's health is concerned. Mm. There's, there's a lot of studies from Harvard. It's not my research, but there are very large scale studies from the team of Dr. Willett at, at Harvard, which is kind of like the Bible for me, showing how full fat dairy products are actually supportive of fertility in women, wow, really okay. of ovarian uh, fertility. And one of the beliefs is that if you go uh, low fat or skimp milk, what happens is that hormones really bind to fat. So a glass of full fat milk is like a hormonal cocktail in a way because it's from pregnant cows. So they're making hormones and then we get their hormones as we drink the milk or the yogurt or the, you know, probably not the cheese because there's a lot more cooking involved. But um, whereas if you go the skin fat milk route, um, the fat has been removed. So the hormones have been removed with the milk, almost, especially estrogens. And what is left is more androgens and um, other hormones that are not specifically female, but they're more like male hormones. And so we're not doing our hormones any favor. Mm. in that department but that's that's still to be very yeah. yeah anyway again it's common sense like if you if you want to treat yourself to like a, a yogurt i would say go for a good one like a plain yeah. but full fat nice yogurt, greek yogurt rather than <laughs> crappy denon with a ton of mm-hmm. artificial stuff thrown in mm-hmm. But so, yes, so no refined carbohydrates as much as possible. And also um, there's no evidence that eating more meat than necessary would do you any good. Whereas there is evidence that eating fish is actually good for your brain and Mm. hormones both. Mm. Mm. I love it. Also, regular consumption of fish and legumes has really been associated with the later onset of menopause in women. Whereas a high concept, yeah, whereas a a high consumption of processed foods has been associated with the opposite. So even women who have no genetic reason to go through menopause early seem to go through menopause a little bit earlier than expected by age and family history. If their diets are really rich in processed foods and poor, like low in the other phytoestrogen rich. Wow. Okay. That's so good to know. Okay. Yeah. So you'll go through menopause when you're 90. Perfect. 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 And me too. And we'll be yes. celebrating together. Yes. And I won't have I won't have Alzheimer's. So okay, so let's shift into lifestyle. So exercise has been shown many, many times to be really powerful preventative against brain aging and dementia, which does not mean that exercise is a magic pill, obviously. 
but it's really supportive of brain health because it really boosts your immune system, it promotes brain energy levels, it promotes uh, production of neurotransmitters that keep the brain young, it promotes neuronal growth. I mean, I could go on forever and it also mm. reduces inflammation. Mm. But what is important to know for women is that exercise is even more of a preventative against Alzheimer's disease for women than for men. And this is the newest research, which is not to say that exercise is not important for men or that men should not exercise, but it's really saying that women should probably exercise a little more because we know from a number of studies that women exercise consistently less than men at any age, but especially after age 35. So there's a strong decline in the amount of time that women are able to exercise or decide to exercise. And we all know why, right? That, that's a no-brainer. We're just super busy. We have a career that we try to, to keep going. We have small children. We're taking mm-hmm. care of elderly parents. We're taking care of the house, you know, and every woman, of course, is different, but the net result is that also because our hormones are changing, right? It takes a good eight to 10 years to go through menopause. And those years can be very difficult for so many women, not just because of the hot flashes and nice sweats and mood swings, but also because hormonal changes really bring up fatigue in a lot of women mm-hmm. who just feel exhausted. And so, so many women, women um, just end up not exercising enough. So just to motivate everyone to try and find and make time for a little bit of physical activity, there are, there's a number of studies with thousands and thousands of women showing how if you're physically active in midlife, your risk of dementia is 30% lower than a woman who's not exercising at all. Wow. 30%. Now, if I had a pill that reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease by 30%, Everybody wow. would buy it and I would be rich. Yes. Right? So instead, <laughs> instead, uh, the prescription is just to simply exercise. And everybody knows that exercise is good for you. I think the challenge is really to make the time for it and to find an exercise routine that really works for you. Like yes. always my, my major recommendation is don't follow trends. Yes. Like you don't have to go spinning. You don't have to do... Roomba, you don't have to do intensity <laughs> interval training, Zumba, I guess it's called. Um, you don't have to do any of these things. You need to find one thing, and maybe you love them, and then great, do it. But don't feel bad if you don't like them or if you can't do them because it's too much, it's just not your thing. It's really important to find an exercise routine or a combination of things that really work for you and make you happy because research shows that, especially for women, the point is not intensity, but really is consistency. Ah, we okay. Exercise three to four times a week, or just three times a week, for like forty minutes at a moderate intensity. Those women are really the healthiest you can find all over the world, and that's mm. research. It's really solid research with like tens of thousands of women showing how. Um, moderate intensity, low to moderate intensity exercise performed consistently is really the strongest predictor of longevity mm. in women and health. Well, we can make time for that. I've been actually loving um, having to be more creative with my exercise. And there's so many apps that are just amazing. And that's one thing too, that's, that's shifted for me. I used to exercise really, really hard, too hard, mm. so much so that it affected my cycle yeah. and it's too hard yeah. for me. It's just to somebody else, maybe with different constitution, it would have been fine. But when I really just went to more moderate exercise, maybe two days a week, have something a little harder, but, you know, a walk in 20 minutes of weight or do a cycle mm-hmm. class, but don't push myself as hard. I actually have more energy that way. So right. that's the thing, ladies, we're not saying you have to go kill yourself at the no. gym. It's just moving your body. And, and not only does it make your brain better in the long run, it sure makes you better in the short run too. I'm in a much yes. better mood when I'm moving my body. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially, I think when you have like young kids, it's really hard to make time for you. So for me now, they were in social isolation, and and my daughter is again she's four and a half, and she's bored to tears. So I I feel terrible taking an hour 
to exercise. And so I had to find things that I can do in like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so, well, we do yoga together, which could be an easy 40, 45 minutes. Um, And I end up with all her stuffed animal on my head, on my back, but at least we do it. And then I plank for 10 minutes a day. Mm. And it's really hard, but I think it's good to start like with a minute and a half. And then the day after you add 30 seconds and then 30 seconds and then 30 seconds until you can do like a good solid eight minutes or more. And it really is great. Yeah, yeah, try it. I feel like you just dared me. (laughs) I'm going to try it. That's great. Yeah, you can try. You can try. I have all my friends are trying. It's It's a challenge. And sometimes, you know, it, it's just too much. But again, don't feel bad about it. You know, if you can do three minutes here and three minutes there, it's fine. At some point, you'll do 10 minutes straight. Or not. Maybe it's just not your thing. But I think it's worth trying because worth it's trying. really, you know, it's literally if you can do 10 minutes, you feel like you've lifted weights for an hour and a half. <laughs> so good. Before we move on to, to stress, um, which is something I talk a lot about in the show, I do mm. want to ask, you know, what are some of the, the early signs or early indicators that we may be headed towards Alzheimer's or, or dementia? Um, like I, I'm thinking specifically of a couple people in my life who are in their thirties and I worry about them because the, they con- it's like a constant forgetting of, of a name or a restaurant or, you know, it's like the, oh, what's that person's name? Uh, 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 and it takes a while for it to come to them. And so in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm like, oh no, is this early signs of memory loss? Does, does, is that what early signs of memory loss looks like? Or does it look different in our more 30, 40s? In the 30s and 40s, there shouldn't be any of these signs. Mm. it's really usually so the problem we have in alzheimer's disease is that the symptoms don't really come out clearly until people are definitely past 50 but more often than not past 60 okay so i think if you're 30 and you're having these issues um it's unlikely to be alzheimer's unless you have a genetic mutation Mm that causes Alzheimer's, but that's really less than 2% of the population. And it's in families um, that are heavily affected by Alzheimer's with an age of onset in their 30s and 40s. So it's a very rare mm-hmm. condition, I would say. Mm-hmm. Somebody's in their 30s and 40s and really having a hard time. I, I would be more concerned about other things. Are, are they women? One's a woman, one's a man. For women, I would really check thyroid function. Mm-hmm. hormonal levels, um, stress. Something that actually, this ties nicely into the stress reduction we were going to talk about. Uh, something that many studies have shown is that if you have chronic stress and very high cortisol levels, that really impacts your brain in a negative way. It promotes brain shrinkage and memory loss when people are in their 40s and 50s, so probably even 30s. And part of why that happens is that cortisol works in balance with their estrogens. So if cortisol, the main stress hormone, is high, your estrogens go down. Mm. And then you have the estrogen deprivation and too much stress that creates inflammation. And then I think your brain is impacted to the point that you really have a hard time paying attention or memorizing information. There's a lot of brain fog that could be a result of that. And in that case, uh, really lowering stress is, yeah. is a great strategy. No, I know when my thyroid was off this past summer, I had such brain fog. It wasn't yeah. so much my memory. I just couldn't think very clearly. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What about for, for men? Because one thing I've heard too is that that kind of short-term memory loss can be tied to dyslexia. Mm-hmm. It can maybe not ADHD. be tied to... ADHD. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it maybe isn't necessarily a dementia memory problem. It's right. more of a processing problem. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so just moving on to stress, mm-hmm. um, I imagine that, you know, long-term stress, not taking care of ourselves, not sleeping, living in more of that fight or flight, which we talk about a lot, mm-hmm. is going to, you know, it wears the body down, it lowers our immune system. So it makes sense that it's going to shrink the brain as well. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. However, we don't talk about that enough. 
Mm. Right? We all understand intuitively that stress can really model your thinking and, and reasoning capacities, but we don't fully understand that by not reducing stress, we're going to affect our brains. And our brains are really hard to fix mm. once, there, once there is a measurable problem. You, you can't just revert it um, if, if the problem is shrinkage, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to to start thinking about stress reduction as soon as possible. And the sooner you start, the better for you. For me, it took a little while to get to uh, to really take stress seriously. I mm. just assumed it was a part of life. You know, I have a stressful job. I, I'm an overachiever by yep. far. So I have all these things that I want to do. And I, I would just say, well, yes, of course I'm stressed out. Who is not? But the point is that stress should not be a normal part of our lives. Yes. Right? Yes. So we should not really work to find ways that we can reduce or minimize or completely eliminate stress as much as possible. I agree. And I I have a concern, prediction, I don't know what I'm going to call it, but mm. I have seen you know, cause I think we're both in the same age demographic that 30 to 40, mm-hmm. you know, entrepreneur, young mother, like, um, I'm not a mother yet, but, and what I have seen is on a rise so much in women in their thirties and early forties. And yes. I think it's because of stress is adrenal fatigue, mm-hmm. thyroid problems, right. viruses like Epstein-Barr. Right. And I am concerned if we don't get your book, which I'm going to mention in a second, and do things about this, then more and more of us, the number of women that are going to have Alzheimer's is going to go up because we're already showing signs that with our thyroids and hormones and adrenal and, you know, a lot of the viruses that women are dealing with, our body is screaming at us. Like, Mm -hmm. lady, you are too stressed out. This is not the way we were meant to live. Right. So I hope everyone listening is really taking what Lisa is saying to heart and will not only take what she's saying, but also go and get her book, which I love the name of it. It's, is it, do you say the double X brain or the X brain? (laughs) The XX. The XX brain. Tell us, as we wrap up here, tell us about about this book and what people can learn when they go and get it. So the XX Brain is really a guide. I wrote it to for every woman. It's a book that is unapologetically for women and about women. And it's really mm. about optimizing cognitive health and preventing Alzheimer's disease in women. So the book is really meant to be um, educational in that there is... Um, Part one is really about the research and the science behind women's brains. Part two includes a number of tests and questionnaires and that any woman can do straight off the book. But there's also a lot of it. I really explain what kind of tests are really important to do uh, with your doctor's help and also kind of clarify which tests are not that important, (laughs) even though a lot of women, a lot of people think that they should take those tests, like some genetic testing, you know, what are the pros and cons and how to really interpret those tests. And then there's a more, uh, just part three that is more prescriptive, if you will, although there are no prescriptions, but it's really about sharing the latest research on things that have been scientifically proven to really work for women. So what can you do? If you're all about diet, this is the diet that's been shown to really work for women. Mm -hmm. And at different ages, for example, or exercise, this is what works best for women under 45. And this is what really works better for women over 45. And then there's a lot of information about reducing stress and improving sleep and staying away from toxins and uh, why brushing your teeth is so important for your brain. And Mm. A lot of mm. other things that... Oh, so much we didn't get into. We didn't get into toxins. We didn't get into brushing our teeth. Right. And I think scraping our tongue <laughs> is so important. <laughs> and uh, I can't wait to, to dive more into the book and get a lot of these things. Thank you. Yeah. So I imagine people can get the book on Amazon. Yeah. Um, I just followed you on Instagram. It's, oh, yeah. Nice. So we can find you there. Thank Where you. else can people connect with you? I imagine your website... My website um, is lisamascani.com. I have another website for my book, which is bxxbrain.com. And I think Instagram is probably 
Yeah. One of the best ways. So my handle is Dr. Dr. Underscore Mosconi, M-O-S-C-O-N-I. And I actually really answer direct messages. Oh, I, I love that. Thank you, time blog that. Yeah. Yeah. Really, yeah. I do my best. I do. Well, and last, last question I wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of, we you know we talked about diet lifestyle. We talked about exercise. We talked about stress. What about just brain exercises? Like, I don't know, doing puzzles, learning new things. How important is that to right. the health that's, of our brain? Right. So that's also in the book because okay, it's great. such an important uh, question and so many people ask. I would say that, you know, I really go into various apps that mm-hmm. claim that they can boost your memory and increase your IQ and blah, blah, blah. Again, I would say stay away from those as much as you can. What, what research shows is that uh, learning is really the key there. Mm. So learning is to your brain what exercise is to your muscles. Mm. You really have to have those neurons fire. So you really have to learn something new to keep your your brain really intellectually active. And to give you an example, if you like reading books, right? Or let's say if you like watching movies, instead of watching a comedy, you can watch a documentary. You can watch a TED talk. Okay. Learn something. Okay. If you so it like, doesn't have to be as big as learn a new language or learn no. to play guitar. Okay. No, okay. no, no. It's just things that you do that where you learn something new. You don't want to just get better at playing a game. Okay. Learn something new. So if you like playing chess, playing Mm -hmm. more chess will Mm -hmm. not help you nearly as much as learning to play bridge. You know what I mean? That's the kind of, um, right. If you can play the flute, start playing the guitar, although it's, it's hard, it's difficult. It doesn't have to be that challenging, but I think it's, it's a general principle. Like if you like to read a relaxing novel that's fine. But the next time, maybe you pick up my book and learn something from the book or yeah. somebody else's book that is interesting to you. Well, it's interesting. Like we, we were traveling for the last three and a half months and um, just moved into a new house. So I'm, mm. I'm always thinking about, you know, new things and getting new things and doing a new routine and getting used to a new environment. And I've noticed my brain is actually sharper. Right. Because I'm not in the same old, same old, you know, right. day after yeah. day. So absolutely. Oh. You have to keep challenging. Keep challenging. Time. Well, I I love this. Thank you so much. Um, mm. I can't wait to get the book. Women, I hope you really take to heart everything that Lisa said. And I, I assume that so many of these things can help men as well. I mean, right. the, yes, yes. So keep sure. we we want our, our men to remember us <laughs> as well. <laughs> and just the last the last question I have for you. Let's say that someone is out there who's concerned about a loved one, their parent, their sister, even themselves. Mm-hmm. What are some of the earliest signs that should that someone should maybe take seriously and go and get checked out? I think the earliest signs could be uh, a reduced capacity of multitasking. Mm. Like if you can no longer do as many things as you as you used to be doing well at the same time, uh, in a like if you have a hard time remembering names mm-hmm. or remembering details, mm-hmm. I think this is a good reason to go for a checkup. But I I think I think it's a little tricky when when you're younger than sixty sixty five. It's a little bit difficult to be taken seriously. Mm. at that age, even if you have this concern. So something I would perhaps recommend is to look at the research program or either an Alzheimer's prevention clinic like ours, because we do take you seriously Mm -hmm. and we're all about very early prevention. So we know how to recognize the symptoms and advise accordingly, whereas the standard neurology may neurologists may may not know what to do with you if you're Mm -hmm. younger than a certain age. Mm -hmm. Um, or join a research program like ours that is really about understanding these concerns and looking at your brains with the brain scans so we can actually check what's happening in your brain that could potentially cause these concerns. And so you get the brain scans for free and you also get clinical advice for free. And at the same time, you're helping others Mm. by Mm. supporting research in turn. I love this. Well, Lisa, Lisa, thank you so much for 
everything that you gave today and for the work that you're doing. You really are just a, a leader and a pioneer and yeah. someone who I can tell cares very, very deeply about the work yeah. that you're doing. And very much. we need more people like you out there. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> um, so everybody go and get Dr. Lisa's book, The XX Brain. Make it something that you you read as part of your corona <laughs> isolation, <laughs> social distancing with the book. Actually, yeah. if I if I can mention that the yeah. book is now uh, free on uh, Audible. Uh, the audiobook, if you're not an Amazon Prime uh, subscriber, you can get the book for free, which I thought was really nice. Oh, really? That's yeah. so cool. Oh, if you've never used Audible before. So yeah. if you get oh, okay. Got it, got it, got Audible, it. Yes. Then yes. you can get the book for free. The Kindle edition is now 50% off. It's an effort to really you know, provide some kind of distraction at least. Oh, great. The people great. who stuck at home. And also I'm really happy to report that The XX Brain is a New York Times bestseller. Oh, as, as it should of be. last week. So as I'm really it excited should be. about that. In spite, in spite of the virus. That's wonderful, as it should be. Well, thank you. Thank you so, so much for all the work that you're doing. Hmm. Thank you for your work and for helping us really uh, raise awareness of these problems and you know, giving us a voice to help pleasure. them. Pleasure, pleasure. Mm-hmm.